it went from people saying doing nothing about it and just kind of going, oh, well, that's just how this the way things are, to um, people actually standing up and saying, no, that's not okay. My name is Will Small. I'm a husband and a dad. And for the sake of my family and my community, I want to be a healthy man. Images on magazines would lead me to believe that means having ripped abs and a good paycheck. But I'm not satisfied with that story. Are you? Join me and my guests as we explore the idea of healthy manhood in the modern world. This is the Mankind Podcast. It's not really a secret that we've got some problems. On average in Australia, one woman a week is murdered by her current or former partner. 85% of Australian women have been sexually harassed. And that's not even to mention the violence that men commit against each other. And those aren't easy things to hear. They aren't easy to say. And people can get pretty defensive when those kind of stats come up. You may have heard people say, or maybe you've said things like, that's not all men, or let's not just man hate. To be honest, I kind of feel like that's just missing the point. Of course, I want to celebrate good men. But looking at our problems, that actually takes courage. That takes strength. And if you're a man like me who still wants to be associated with those qualities, then I think we need to listen really well to women, to men, to children. You see, the thing about statistics is that beneath them, there are stories, names and faces, mothers, daughters, fathers, sons. And I don't know about you, but when numbers make me feel overwhelmed, stories make me feel connected. So in this episode, I wanted to chat through some of the problems we face in our culture and have an honest conversation about some of the cycles we need to break. I thought the best way to do that would be to invite a couple of friends to share their stories and then to have a conversation about how we could do things differently. Well, I recently made two new friends. They both have difficult to pronounce last names. So I can, I can introduce Jake and Mel and I can try say their last names, but I'm just going to get each of you guys to give the accurate pronunciation of your last name and then I'll have a go. But let's start with you, Jake. What's your last name? Uh, my name is Jacob Tumanako. That's what my mother calls me, Jacob Tumanako, but you can call me Jake Tumanako. Jake Tumanako. Yeah. How'd I go? Awesome. Amazing. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Good thing I practiced it before. Mel, what about you? What's your last name? Uh, I am Melanie Voidis. Yours is particularly confusing because of how it's spelled. Yes. Spelled W-O-J-T-A-S. Looks Correct. like Wojtaz. Wojtaz, yes. I, I get Wahidas a lot. Wahidas. Every, everyone assumes the J is like Mexican. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I do not look Mexican. <laughs> but I get Wahidas a lot, yeah. Wahidas. Sounds, sounds delicious. Sounds like Wahidas. Exactly. Well, I, re- I met you guys both in the last few months and uh, it's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit. And um, I met... Jake first through uh, basically some youth work circles, uh, working with young people and we're at an event together and we connected. And then uh, Jake got both me and Mel to be part of a, a training, um, yeah, kind of with, with some youth workers. And I guess I really, as soon as I met you guys, I wanted to chat to you on Mankind uh, because I think you both have a, a different perspective on the whole conversation around what healthy masculinity looks like and what kind of destructive unhealthy masculinity looks like we'll kind of unpack your 
stories, your perspectives, your angles a bit. But in a nutshell, um, Jake, you spend a lot of time working with young people who end up in some pretty difficult spots. And uh, for some of them, you know, that means ending up uh, maybe in juvie or, or kind of, you know, in a situation where they're breaking the law. And you kind of probably look at some of that and go, there are contributing factors there around who they feel they have to be or what the kind of messages are that they grow up with. And then for you, Mel, you've got like a powerful story of being uh, a survivor of um, domestic violence and kind of, um, yeah, some of that really toxic, destructive, gendered violence. Uh, but then you're also somebody who's actually now using your position to be an advocate for others who are vulnerable and um, you're, you're a social entrepreneur and you're a speaker and you know, you're both amazing people. So thank you for giving me some time. Thanks, all. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I would love to just start by asking you guys one at a time. Maybe we'll start with, with you, Jake. Just what was a little bit of your like, life like growing up? Where did you grow up? And in the household that you grew up in or the community that you grew up in, what were some of the kind of messages in the air about what it meant to be a man? I grew up in New Zealand, a little town called um, Gisborne. It's on the east coast of the North Island and uh, it's quite a remote sort of area. The little place where I live, it's called uh, Ngātapa, and um, the closest city to that is um, Gisborne, so we're right in the country. In my family, the way we grew up was um, my, my, my dad's Māori and my mum is, um, she's she's a Pākehā, so Pākehā means a, a white person. And um, we pretty much grew up in, the, in a Māori sort of um, um, upbringing, and um, that meant that we spent a lot of time with family, um, a lot of time... Um, Going to the marae with uh, with with family, so going to a, a traditional meeting places and spending a lot of time at either funerals or weddings or birthdays um, or even going to the beach and going going diving or fishing and stuff like that. So yeah, that was pretty much how we kind of um, how we grew up. What do you think was kind of like your understanding? Like if you're a kid. Yeah. And you were asked, what does it mean to be a man? Mm. What do you think would have been your answer? What were some of the kind of things that you saw in men around you or just some of the messages that you heard? I'm thinking of a couple of scenarios. So growing my, my old man, he, he, he worked a lot. He was, uh, he was a shearer. Um, and so there was a lot, of, a lot of alcohol around that. So I grew up thinking basically that, that men work hard and then they drink at the end of the day. Um, unfortunately, the bad part of that is that um, with a lot of alcohol, um, there's you know there's a bit of bit of DV and stuff that happens um, around that and violence in, in particular. And so um, I, I guess I look. I, I watched my my mum and dad fight a bit, and um, and also I saw a lot of fighting between men and a lot of fighting between women. Um, so I kind of grew up thinking that you know violence was okay. Yeah. It's just part part and parcel of what what it means to be a man, and that you. That you know, if you if you can dominate people, then basically, then that's that's what what makes you um, a man in terms of the hierarchy. The the more that you can dominate people, the higher you are up on that on that hierarchy. And what about you, Mel? Where did you grow up? What was some of the, I mean, from the other side of the coin growing up, you know, as a, as a girl, a young woman, mm. what did it mean for you, like the idea of manhood or, or you know, just, yeah, share a bit of your yeah. story. Thanks for sharing that, Jack. Ah, no worries. <laughs> Appreciate it. Uh, I grew up, I was actually born on the coast. So uh, born on the coast, uh, 
race here till halfway through primary school and then we relocated to Sydney. So then uh, most of my primary years were spent on the lower North Shore in Sydney, so pretty beautiful, privileged area. Um, like Jake and a lot of young people out there, um, there was DV in my home as well, but I didn't know what it was. I just knew that uh, to be a man meant that you're the breadwinner. It was all very typical, patriarchal, traditional. But mind you, both my parents worked full-time, so I always just thought it was normal for men and women to both work full-time. So um, the main person that was home with us after school was actually my grandma. Mm -hmm. So it was a bit of a mix-up, but that's because my background's Polish, so that's pretty typical for European people is that the grandparents help rear the children and so the parents can go on and work. So we're very close with our grandma, which is lovely. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a lot of the dominance probably rings true in that um, my dad's main parenting style is the way that he was parented and that was through fear. <laughs> Mm. So, um, you know, it would always be, oh, wait till your dad gets home. It was never, oh, wait till your mum gets home because it wouldn't elicit the same reaction. I'd just be like, oh, yeah, I can't wait for my mum to come home. So <laughs> I think, yeah, just dominance, control and uh, parenting through intimidation. Yeah, so you both touched on that idea of dominance, you know, yeah. kind of being being on top, having the power, having a sense of control. Yeah. Maybe unpack a bit of how you saw that maybe play out negatively or saw some of the cracks in that kind of story of what manhood looks like. Uh, with my own father, it was pretty complex. So I used to see him when I was a child, I saw him as a hero because he was always doing so much. You know, he was um, he played on an ice hockey team, a very male-dominated sport, and, you know, very macho thing to do, play hockey. And, you know, everybody knows that as a violent <laughs> You know, you see the NHL and you think, oh, yeah, it's exactly like that. It's not like that in Australia, but um, it's still a pretty macho sport um, or it's known for that. Um, he was also on a cycling team and he was, you know, a business development manager. So he was very well put together and it was all about image and ego. So he drove a nice car and he wore a really nice suit. And I just remember as a kid, you know, going through his collection of cufflinks. So it was all very much about being seen as being successful and having this big successful life. Um, but what he, the ugly side of that coin is that he was so hyper-focused on being seen as, you know, this larger than life man with the beautiful wife, the you know, beautiful family, great job, good at sport, you know, all round just great guy. But he actually uh, was hiding a lot of shame and pain about being abused as a child. Um, so I, I watched this kind of hero figure almost crumble in front of my eyes as a teenager when he um, had quite literally a mental breakdown around his childhood trauma coming out and then, yeah, spending a lot of the rest of my life watching him in, in different mental health hospitals. So going from I think he just couldn't, he couldn't even keep that image. It wasn't real. It was just a projection. Um, but then watching how far he fell from that and, you know, having the family to try and manage that mm. new normal 
Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. yeah. So for you, Jake, you know, obviously just from our relationship so far and the conversations we've had, you don't seem like a, a man who's trying to dominate or who's trying to live out maybe that story that, that you saw as normal. What happened for you that you kind of saw that for something that you didn't want to be or that you wanted to challenge? Maybe what's some of your story of like rather than just becoming what would have been the normal progression, actually kind of seeing it as something that you wanted to challenge and change a bit? Oh, there's a heap of stories I can tell you, but I'll tell you um, probably one is the the movie um, Once Warriors. Do you remember that? I, yes, right. I very remember that, yeah. When that came out, there was a lot of stuff that happened in New Zealand, like a lot of realisation as to how common domestic violence was in, in the community. And um, I remember having heaps of conversations with a lot of, lot of friends and then well, most of them saying, yeah, that's how we live. And it was just the way that we did things. And I think around that time, a lot of people started questioning that. Like they started saying, oh, no, I don't think that's okay. Like it went from people saying, doing nothing about it and just kind of, going, oh, well, that's just how this, the way things are, to um, people actually standing up and saying, no, that's not okay. I think a lot of things changed culturally in New Zealand around that time. Um, but I guess for me, um, there was, a, there was a, a few things that I, that I went through. So, you know, growing up, um, I got into a little bit of trouble when I was a kid and um, probably, you know, doing similar kind of... Um, Using using a bit of violence, and um, and then when I eventually when 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 I kind of got a bit of a kick up the bum for it, um, I started realizing that it wasn't you know that that wasn't the way that that um, things are supposed to be. And then um, one of the big learnings was uh, actually seeing my um, my sister, one of my sisters, um, going through it. And there was um, there was one situation where, she, where I saw her going through it. I actually walked into it happening, and um, and that was the moment where I probably said to myself, "Oh, you know, this is not how how it's supposed to be. That this is not what what we are as a family." And um, and making a decision at that point where you know to actually make a real 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 difference and make do something different around yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. So sometimes there's kind of specific moments that it's almost like something that's always kind of been normal, you begin to see it crack open. Mm. Yeah, that, that shouldn't be normal. And it's kind of you're describing that that kind of happened maybe there's a cultural moment more broadly in New Zealand where people were having that kind of realisation. But then you've also got a real personal moment that you remember where you kind of went, nah, that's not how things should be. Yeah. The violence in my home, I never actually saw it between I – was, I was never witness to it between my parents, but I just knew that something – I had a feeling that something was wrong because there was a lot of arguing and I never saw anything, uh, but I just knew that some – it was almost like instinctively I knew something wasn't right. So I remember my earliest memory of knowing – it was almost like an immediate shift and I knew that something wasn't okay was when I started to try and record their arguments 
in primary school. I must have been about 10, but I remember on the old stereos you could press record and play at the same time and it would actually right. record your voice or the room. It was kind of like a, an old school. It's the original like the podcast. Tapes. The original podcast, yeah. The tapes. So, the, the yeah, and, ta- tapes. And, and Walkmans and stuff, yeah. yeah. So I remember doing that in my room in like year four and I didn't even know, like I don't even know if I'd seen it in a movie or something, but I just had this instinctive feeling that what was happening in the next room, somebody else needed to know about it. And I don't think I even caught anything on tape. It was probably just arguing about money or something, but I just knew that I was scared enough to want to have evidence of it, even as a kid, which, and that's my earliest memory as a kid. Um as I grew older, wow, yeah, I don't think I even did anything with it. I, I mean, I wouldn't. I was so young, I wouldn't have even known who to give it to either. Mm. But I just knew that somebody else needed to hear it. That is really profound that you, yeah, you were actually trying to capture that story. You're trying to record it, mm. whether or not you shared it. There was something about this. Yeah. This needs to be told and maybe proven Outside that it's not the just house. your you kind of almost get, getting some. Uh, mm something that goes beyond just your voice. Yeah. And, I mean, I couldn't even hear what they were saying. I just knew that it was it was scary enough that I knew that somebody outside the house needed to know that this family that we were presenting, you know, beautiful um, beautiful area, affluent suburb, um, you know, both parents have really great corporate jobs, uh, yet I was trying to record something scared in my bedroom. Like it just, it, feel, it felt like... I guess even as a child, I knew that it was different mm. from how we, you know, how we presented ourselves outside was different to what was happening inside the house. Yeah, which yeah. is huge. You talked before about that kind of image mm. management or that image kind of driven. The Jekyll and Hyde look. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And then I know you've talked about um, growing up in Northern Beaches, kind of like affluent suburb and then that, that nobody expects <laughs> mm. it's almost like that's kind of like the epitome of image driven right right yeah. like we think that all the problems are in the poorest places mm. and the prettiest most wealthy looking places are free of problems when actually some of this stuff goes much deeper than mm. your income level or your postcode what do you think that's about like do you know either of you guys what do you think is it that this is kind of an issue that transcends economics and transcends geography? I think um, privilege comes a lot into it. So I think the main reason is I've spoken to a few people in the youth sector recently and they all said, so you ended up being removed from your parents, right? And I said, no, of course not. I had too much privilege. <laughs> and that's uh, that's awful to laugh about but I laugh because it's actually true. If I was from an Indigenous family... Um, I would have been removed immediately. Mm. And, I mean, the child removal rates for anybody that's Indigenous is just heartbreaking. But because I was from the Lower North Shore in Sydney and I was going to, you know, a good school, still a public school, but it was great, and, you know, they were seemingly from the outside world, nothing was wrong until my teenage years and then people started to notice (laughs) Yeah. What what happened in your teenage years? You happy to share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, my father had quite a very literal nervous breakdown and um, told us that he'd been abused all through school as part of um, institutional child sex abuse in a Catholic school, and that he essentially almost overnight ended up going and living in 
uh, a psychiatric hospital. So then I went from having two parents to one and not knowing why. Um, and then the, the cracks really started to show there. So I went through my own trauma with um, some other people at my school uh, and started skipping school and, um, yeah, truancy, running away from home, uh, getting brought back by police, uh, just lots of the symptoms of my own trauma were starting to come out into the light. Uh, so the last place I wanted to be was at home, basically. Which, uh, to fast forward to present day, Jake, you probably work with young people who are similar to that version of Mel that she just described, come across some of those young people who are maybe getting in trouble with, with the law or, you know, kind of heading down a bit of a destructive path. Um, how much do you think that comes back to some of this stuff that Mel's saying that's kind of hidden and, and in the shadows and, you know, what do you think is behind some of that? Mm, I was, I've been thinking recently about this whole thing around like a mask that people wear. Yeah. And um, some people are good at having, putting up this mask and um, others can't. They just, they just, just they just, don't have a mask and I uh, think um, and then if, you know, places where, like eastern suburbs and stuff like that, they're really good at having this mask because it's the way, it's, it's the way things are meant to be. It's like everything's perfect. Mm. And so everyone kind of wears that mask and anyone who stands out differently is like, yeah, like you're not part of this group, mm. right? The, so you the don't The elite here. with the white picket fence. And yeah. Yeah. So, um yeah, I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about this whole thing around a, like a mask, the mask that we wear, and um, I think mm. that's that's um, that's that's part of it. Yeah, that's huge. Mm. That's huge. And uh, it sounds like almost everybody in this situation. This is one of the things I've observed. You know, when you talk about observing that uh, manhood is about dominance, or when you talk about you know your your dad having kind of the right car or or the kind of the right image. Uh, and then you look at the way that young people kind of respond, maybe living out some of these traumas. It's mm. like everybody's acting. Yeah. And maybe there's something about uh, all of these constructs or these kind of expectations uh, are actually misaligned with what people would really be like if they had kind of a bit of mm. safety and freedom to just kind of be who they are without having to prove anything or mm. having to fit into any kind of mould. Yeah. So it's almost like that mask thing is true. It's true for the really successful business person as well as the the young kid, you know, out late at night graphing up a wall or something. <laughs> it's kind of like the same thing is happening, yeah. like trying to perform to a role. Ego. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested for both of you guys, you've kind of ended up seeing some of that, experiencing some of that, having kind of a, a, a real exposure to the problem um, and yet kind of in some ways not, like I was saying before, like not kind of becoming just a product of it, uh, actually kind of coming out the other side, you know, for you, Mel, like as a, as a survivor and kind of actually someone who shares your story powerfully and, and for you, Jake, someone who's actually trying to help, um, you know, both for your own, uh, your own role as a dad but also in your work life trying to help young people become, you know, able to take the mask off. Why is that so important to you guys or, or what, what do you think led to you actually wanting to, yeah, change that? 
someone actually asked me a while back um, just recently, uh, what, why do I do the work that I do? Mm. Um, and what it comes down to is um, it makes me happy. And, and then when I think about, like, well, why does that make me happy, right? And, I, and what I realised, right, was that um, when I was young, um, I saw some bad things happen, right? But we're talking about the domestic violence. Um, so I, I saw some domestic violence happening and I've got two sisters and I recall um, being in, in a bedroom while there was uh, domestic violence happening and, um, and you know, hugging my sisters and, and saying, no, it's going to be okay, it's going to be all right. And, um, and I realised, just recently I realised that it was around that time that I, that I had made a decision that doing that for my sisters had made me feel good. And so I just kept on. I've kept on doing that throughout my throughout my life. Yeah, that's awesome. How about for you, Mel? Uh, for me, it's two things really. I'm I'm very legacy focused um, over the last few years in wanting to um, kind of just leave the world a tiny bit better than while I was in it. I guess um, in a positive way, not in a negative way. And I actually lost my father to suicide on Father's Day. 2017. So that kind of was a huge kick up the backside to actually use my voice while I have a voice because life is fleeting. Um, And in some ways, losing him to suicide sadly was inevitable because I'd grown up watching him do that. Um, However, just even though I'm only in my 30s, still, I think I really did need um, some extra motivation to just make something of myself and help others. So growing up in multiple DV relationships once I left home at 16 um, and was quite vulnerable and, um, yeah, fell into a few different relationships with people who took advantage and exploited me and um, there was always obvious um, power imbalances there and just feeling quite invisible when I was younger. Um, because people knew that there was violence. They saw it happening. I told them about injuries. I showed them property damage and they actually didn't do anything, even adults. So the injustice of that was kind of the thread line into my adult life as an older adult Um, and just trying to ensure... I don't feel like I need to be seen, but I'm using my voice for my younger self because I didn't feel like I actually had one. So now I'm not going to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's gone the other way. Yeah, you have to tell me to be quiet. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. You know, I think in many ways so far our conversation has been uh, in the uncomfortable part of the conversation, right? It's not easy to say that we've got some problems. It's not easy Mm. to say that some of our uh, conceptions around what a man is supposed to be or what a woman is supposed to be, like some of those actually lead to destructive outcomes. That's hard to say. That's uncomfortable. But I'm inspired as I listen to both of you and hear that actually it's possible for people to grow up in the shadow of that or very close to that and yet actually not just become uh, kind of enveloped by that or or lost to that, you know. Um, It inspires me that there's actually the potential to have a conversation around how do we take the masks off how do we tell different stories? How do we envisage a better future? So uh, I think we're going to pause the conversation at this point in time now that we've made everyone 
bit depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we're going to have another conversation soon about uh, what it actually looks like to have a better vision for what uh, healthy humanhood, you know, manhood, womanhood, whatever gender you identify as hood, what, what it looks like to be healthy. I hope you got something out of my conversation with Jake and Mel. I really appreciate the bravery and courage they both shared with. And I want to encourage you to make sure you listen to our next episode where we have a chat about how to break some of those cycles and become more healthy. They both share some great insights and really practical advice, as well as more of their personal stories. You know, a podcast is a great way to start the conversation, but I'm a huge believer that we need connection and community if we're actually going to live out our healthiest version of ourselves. The recent season of social isolation that we've been through has just highlighted that more than ever. If you don't feel like you have people you can talk to and you're in a tough spot, then call Beyond Blue or Lifeline. There are people that want to support you. I would love to hear from you. What do you struggle with? What helps you? Shoot me a message. You can find me on Facebook or Instagram at Lead by Story. And I'd love to have a chat. Help more men find this show by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or even just texting a mate if you got some value out of this. Catch you on the next episode of Mankind. <laughs>